from a tech perspective, we always have the choice. Do we want to either go the route that will foster respect, integrity, and kindness, and unity, even when we defer, and there might be emotions, allow for that space to happen and not take that and sensationalize it. And I always will choose that. Welcome to Blissfully Aware, brought to you by The Daring. In this series, we talk with creative leaders and makers to better understand creative culture and art as a form of social expression. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman. In this episode, I sit with Adriana Teresa Letourney, the founder and CEO of Isura. Adriana is a force of nature, and we met when we both worked at Powerhouse Books. You'll hear us talk about diversity, media literacy, and how visual storytelling changed with the digital revolution and the economic collapse. This is a story about personal history and cultural heritage that continues to inform and shape everything that we do in life. This is a story about feeling vulnerable, owning it, and turning it into empowerment and a way of connecting deeply with people, both professionally and personally. This is how Visura was born. Here it is. I'm so happy to see you. I'm really happy to see you too. It's been how many years? I want to say at least 10 years. 2007. Is that when I parted ways with Powerhouse? Yeah, and you stayed on for a little bit longer. A few months. And you did the exhibition, the Walt Whitman inspired yeah. exhibition. Song of Myself. That's right. A song of Myself inspired by Walt Whitman. Says, I sing to myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. It's beautiful. Yeah. Welcome. I'm so happy that you're here and we get to chat. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Can we dive in and share what you're doing nowadays? Today I'm the founder and CEO of Visura. It's a tech platform that works to empower visual storytelling found online today. For reference, Visura, V-I-S-U-R-A, means to be seen in Latin. And in 2008, when I incorporated, I found the word on a dictionary. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. It's going to take a while for people to pick it up. But I thought that was part of what brought value to our mission, because the internet is so fast. And this word makes you pause. What brought you to the place of starting your own company? Let's talk about that background. I was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where the profession of photography and media, it existed at the time, but there was very little infrastructure for those who were interested in entering that realm to access direction and opportunity. So I had studied anthropology and combined it with comparative literature and then went on to law school. I mean, deep inside, I knew that I wanted to be a visual storyteller or a storyteller per se, whether I was going to write or I was going to photograph because I already had a camera at the time. And I knew that I wanted to learn about other people's voices and serve as a platform so that they could also tell their own story through me or through whatever medium I was eventually going to pick up on. 
because that was such a far reality, photography and media was such a distant reality to me. I went into law school. By the second year, I realized it was not for me. And so speaking about vulnerability, I had to come to terms with that, knowing that that would you know, disappoint a lot of people, starting with my family. So what I did was I just took the money that I had to pay for my tuition and I used it to buy a ticket to fly to New York. At the time, you know, naturally, as my parents said, you know, this is a big switch. And if you're going to do this, then you're going to have to figure this out on your own. And so when I moved to New York and for the next probably like 10 years, all I did was figure it out not realizing that the struggles that I was going through, the challenges that I was facing, you know, many of them were challenges and struggles that other people were facing as well. You know, when they moved to the city or when they were trying to figure out how to become a photographer, get into journalism, become a photojournalist. I thought that my reality in Puerto Rico was because I was in Puerto Rico. I did not understand that this was a reality that was happening across the board because the industry itself lacked an infrastructure that empowered the content producers with access to direction and opportunity once they realized that this is what they wanted to do. Especially those who were minorities, um, whether because they didn't have the funding to support themselves during the process of figuring out and actually entering the industry, the business, or because they didn't know anyone what schools to go to. So as I lived the experience that at the time I thought was unique, slowly I was lucky. There is some luck in all of this. As I started to enter the industry, um, whether it was because I got a, an opportunity as an intern um, at a fashion photo studio or I was able to attend the School of Visual Arts and then I went from internship to internship, I started to realize, A, I wasn't alone. B, there are a lot of gaps in that process that slowly exclude potential talent that could easily contribute to elevating media literacy worldwide and is not doing so because they lack access to direction and opportunity due to things that are outside of their control. When I realized that I wasn't alone, I became obsessed with wanting to solve that problem. And that is how Visura was born. What internal resources do you think you have that allowed you to thrive through that change? Fear of disappointing. What allowed you to convert that fear into something positive and productive? Knowing that there were other people that were experiencing the same things that I was too. Understanding and empathizing with the fact that it was not fair and feeling a sense of responsibility and kind of, yeah, I, first I felt anger, <laughs> then I felt frustration, and then I felt I couldn't just stay in the anger and the frustration because that's not just not who I am. And then there has to be some madness inside of me that made me truly believe that I could embark on this mission to try to change it, and I became obsessed. 
my guiding force throughout all of these years truly has been the Visura community. All the members that join give me purpose, accountability, and they give me a sense of you have to go on. You have to keep doing what you're doing. Had it been all just me, I would have given up. Absolutely. It's bigger than you. And people are relying on you at this point. And so knowing that, I mean, I remember eating sandwich bread where my best friend was accounting Charlotte in Vermont and sleeping on two hours for five years. I was obsessed from six o'clock in the morning to four in the morning, just figuring this out, reading, failing and failing again and again. And it wasn't just about what tangible solutions I could offer. It was the combo of what solutions I could offer within a platform that could also be sustainable on its own as a business model. So it was tiered, the challenges that we were facing, and there's a lot of failing in that process. And the one thing that kept me going were the members that were signing up and were trusting that I would figure it out. What role did the digital revolution play in your development? It was circumstantial. Me and the television, we, we struggle. It's not that I'm this connoisseur of technology or software. In 2008, when the economy crashed and I left Powerhouse to produce the International Pavilion at the New York Photo Festival, something that I did until 2013, during that time, because the economy had crashed, the job market was kaput. Was just, there was no, there was nothing out there. And so we were working for free with the promise of this may lead to a paid opportunity. And I got very lucky that at Powerhouse, I met Graham, an attorney, who had become a designer, an UI UX designer, while working with his family's company in Vermont, starting at the age of 14. So he had already knowledge of the internet. And here's Graham, and we become really good friends, and we're working together all the time. And then I leave Powerhouse. And I'm producing the New York Photo Festival International Pavilion. And then all of a sudden, I think it was in 2009, the economy's crashing. No one's, you know, I'm not getting any job opportunity. I get super frustrated. I turned to Graham and I said, we have to do something. And it was really kind of for selfish reasons. It was survival. And survival, like I can't give up again. Giving up was not an option. I had left everything my family, my home, a career in the legal profession to enter the photography, journalism, and media world. And by then I had graduated from the School of Visual Arts. I had interned at Harper's Bazaar, Rolling Stone Magazine. I had worked at as, a, as a lighting assistant. I had worked at Bruce Silverstein Gallery. I mean, I had assisted Donna Ferrato, Sylvia Plackey. I had done all these things. And literally there was not a single call. You know, again, fear, vulnerability, frustration, anger, and turning that and saying, okay, no, we need to do something. So for me, the solution was to start a magazine. And of course, it had to be online because even though I didn't know anything about it, it was free at the time. All the resources were free. WordPress was free and Graham knew how to use it. And I knew 
you know, I had done the show Song of Myself at Powerhouse. I had already done my first year at the New York Photo Festival. And I had already worked with so many photographers in editing, in addition to interning at these different institutions, right? So again, the madness in me thought, I've got this. That's when I launched Visura Magazine, which was the first online iteration of... I remember it. And it was self-publishing. It featured personal projects by photographers. It was great. Larry Fink, Nina Berman, Lauren Greenfield, Charles Harbett, Alex Webb. The list just kept going and going. There were so many, I think over 130 photographers at the time. There was a huge appetite for what you were doing. When I started the magazine, first, it was a practical thing. I couldn't pay to commission someone to do a story. And second, due to what, the fact that we couldn't get a job, I was truly wondering, what are you doing now that their job market is dropping so significantly? And that's how I learned, oh, we're working on this personal project. And so I was like, will you cover it? And at the time, no one was, that wasn't something people were sharing. So they were like, yeah, of course. And then I said, well, you write about it and I will edit it with you, you know, because it was personal. It was more of a collaboration rather than me selecting for them. So then we started with the first issue. And I mean, within a month, we had 40,000 readers. And that's when we started to realize, oh, wow, something's happening. Because a lot of the readers were one photographers interested in sharing their own personal projects because they too, in waiting for a job opportunity, had started personal projects. Because what else do we do? You got to keep those creative juices going. You have to produce. Yep. And then two, I started receiving emails from editors, photo editors, you know, kind of reaching out. And that's how I slowly started building these relationships with photo editors from all over the world and from major publications. And so as Visura grew as a magazine, right, was initially a magazine, and it was free, it had no advertising, I started getting connected with the industry, photo editors and photographers, a lot of them professional working photographers, but a lot. I started getting letters after letters from aspiring student and aspiring professional photographers who were investing in an education in order to join the industry. And they too were facing the same problems, only now they also were indebted. Because of the name Visur, I feel like I was lucky to connect with people from all over the world very quickly. And I would look at the work and I would be like my goodness, this is really beautiful. And then again, the combo of fear, anger, vulnerability, I mean, madness. There is a level of madness that played in all of this. I would call that tenacity and vision, but okay, we can go with madness too. It's more fun. <laughs> I call it madness because I myself look back and I'm like, I pause. Personally at the time by now, Graham and I are married. You know, what started as a collaborative, artistic, creative, but also professional relationship. I think because in the essence, it stemmed from so much love. It was just bound to become a union too on a personal level, which has been a guiding force regardless of what we do or where we stand personally. Because we have been friends, we have been lovers, we have been married, we have been divorced, we have been parents, you know, we've been individuals, creatives, artists, um, designers, entrepreneurs, and all of that together. 
So at the time, we never thought of this as a business. We never thought it would evolve into what it is today. Um, we just were trying to figure it out, both professionally but personally. As Visura was growing, I encouraged Graham to go to Portland, Maine, and he entered Salt Institute. He received a full scholarship, so that was kind of great. So we definitely go. And while I'm there editing and working on Visura, because I'm receiving all these letters from students and aspiring professionals that weren't necessarily the right fit for the magazine, but ultimately they were all facing the same challenges, only that I realized that sustainability was a real thing. It was really scary, not just to live from month to month, but living at $500 a month, making $1,000 a month. I mean, it was really real. Also at the whim of other people's infrastructure. Yes. And then if you add the fact that you're not living near a city, you're not attending these schools that allow you to funnel into the industry a little bit easier. There's an economical crash that's happening worldwide and it's affecting everybody, you know, where people that may have been able to pay for an education to travel abroad to come to the U.S. to study photojournalism or whatever are now deciding I'm going to stay home and go to the university of my town or my hometown, which ultimately there's nothing wrong. I studied in Puerto Rico and it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. But somehow we're taught or we think that we have to go elsewhere to become empowered. But then when you realize, you know, your foundation builds the essence of your vision and the work that you're going to build upon. Say more. You have to believe in that. You have to trust that. And I understand that we have to step away from it. I did that. But in everything that I do today, I recognize more and more and more how, you know, my story and my history and where I'm from and the history of my people and my community and my hometown of Puerto Rico is part of the story that made up Visura. There's no escaping, I think, our roots. No, it's all interconnected. No one person acts alone. And no one vision is built on its own. So it's not just the personal journey. It's also the history that comes with your journey, you know, with who you are as, in my case, as a woman who is Hispanic, all the parts that make up who you are. And the challenge is that when you apply it to what we do in visual storytelling and in media, you know, journalism, but really in visual storytelling, which is... Is interconnected to so many realms, not just media and journalism. It could be connected to the nonprofit world, to causes around the world and education and health. In understanding that, you realize with time, nothing is just one thing or the other. And so what ultimately, as content producers, makes us unique is acknowledging our history understanding our history, accepting our present in some way, you know? But at the same time, the moment you produce, especially those who are in journalism and and service tunnels, right, where there has to be some separation, can let go of all of that so that your implicit bias doesn't create a wall or tarnish that story that you're trying to convey. Yeah, what I imagine is... As a personal development, as a creator, we need to acknowledge where we come from and then balance that against the stories that we're telling and try to get out of the way so that the story resonates 
in addition to the professional skills that you develop when, as you're learning the technique of sure. the medium that you're using. Sure. But I think in our industry, with how the infrastructure is set up, which explains in a way why so many content producers are not making a sustainable living, right? The self is kind of ignored. And because it, in a way it is not spoken about enough, you know, it affects the value of the content. If you look at it from a bigger picture, right? Do you think there's a place for creators to infuse more of their own story into the bodies of work they're it's developing? A it's a really deep philosophical conversation. And this is what I've learned from a very practical perspective. Let's talk about royalty-free images, which are worth zero. And that being the biggest market, you know, hopefully it's changing. But what does that say about the value of the person that is producing that? how society values the people that are producing that content when it is acceptable to say that it should be uploaded online for free and distributed for free, whether through social media, stock agencies. What does that say about the respect that we have for not just the content, but the individuals that are producing that content when we are not even thinking about the sustainability. You know, are these content producers in a safe working place? Are the content producers making a sustainable living? We're talking about professionals, right? Are they able to develop their professional skills in a way that elevates media literacy so that we can empower visual storytelling in a way that can foster empathy, kindness, inclusivity, informed from a place where it can bring unity not just within our industry, but also within the viewership level. It is all interconnected to such an extent that it's like saying that it is okay to eat anything that is served in front of you because it's free and not ask yourself how it was made or where it came from. It's a sense of entitlement too about this stuff. Like I am entitled to use free images. Why not? Why should I pay? I'm also a struggling whatever. It's such a big problem. You know, from an, an organizational perspective, it's still a trillion dollar industry. An average of 6.4 billion pieces of content are uploaded on a daily basis to the internet. That's mind boggling. On average, 500 million people connect online to connect with other people and access information. It's pretty simple, right? There's all these organizations that are profiting from that because it is an industry. The internet is a business from an economic infrastructure. But I think we're at a time where organizations that are in the position, no matter how much money they're making, of controlling how that information is disseminated, uploaded, and shared, how people connect with each other, and how their information is going from one place to the next. I think we're at a time where it should be a top priority to understand and to start to see the value in the content that is being uploaded to the internet rather than the format, rather than the medium. Start identifying, studying, strategizing, Figuring out ways to separate quality, empowering content that can inform in a way that fosters empathy and kindness and inclusivity from trash. 
Because if so many people are connecting online and they are relying on what they find online, the experiences that they have online, then we need to think about the impact that exchange is having on their mental health. Yeah, planet-wide, not only at the individual level. And we cannot ignore the fact that it's a trillion-plus-dollar industry and reality and, and that there's accountability and a sense of responsibility. We're a startup. We're very small in comparison to most companies out there. I mean, this is a startup led by a woman who is Hispanic. You know, my first job in New York was cleaning for free. I could say that I wrote for the New York Times for free. I wrote for the Huffington Post for free. I interned at Harper's Bazaar for free. You know, absolutely, I grew so much and I've learned so much and I am so grateful from that perspective, from an intellectual perspective and a learning and educational perspective, I'm so grateful. But from a personal perspective, the reality is no one can live like that three and five and seven years. That's not sustainable. And it's not fair. And it doesn't support inclusivity or merit-based opportunities. It doesn't support having better representation in media and creating an enabling environment where people can develop professional skills without feeling that they are going to be left behind because they don't have the money to stay on the track. And if we think that the excuse is because it's competitive, that's not competition. When everyone that's starting is starting from different positions in life. And I will face all my fears and all my insecurities and all my flaws I have, which are much more than my virtues, in order to try to contribute to that conversation. I happen to agree with you. There are people with a different point of view. Mm -hmm. It's worth, I think, studying how to open up that conversation and include them mm -hmm. in it. Because otherwise, we just remain as us and the other. And that divide is never going to be bridged. How do you regard that? I'm coming from a place where I've always defined myself as the other. Mm -hmm. So when I speak about advocating for inclusivity, I think from a place of where I see myself as a minority in more than one way. I want to create a place where there's more diversity where we can grow in the difference. When I think about fostering empathy and kindness and inclusivity, I think of a space, a safe space, where we can have those conversations that will include or consist of perspectives, right? Will be built upon perspectives. And those perspectives are malleable. I mean, that is always gonna change from a deductive to an inductive perspective. I cannot change or control, nor do I want to, how people behave. What I've learned throughout this journey is that what I can do is create a place online where, as a company, we can identify tools that allow, in a safe space, for different people from all over the world with different perspectives to engage without tearing each other apart. And that way, when that exchange happens, because from a tech perspective, there's no interest in manipulating those conversations, in accentuating the differences through algorithms and filter bubbles and strategies that tend to 
take moments where people defer and build upon that to foster conflict, despair, and pain when we think about how we identify and design the user experience, we think about it from a place of understanding that there will be people that will defer. Mm -hmm. So how can they defer in a safe place, maintaining a sense of respect and integrity, not just for the other, but for themselves, which is key. And three, make sure that none of the strategies that we use when those exchanges happen cultivate hate or anger. Viewers, also content producers, people who upload online, they need to learn and understand and question the platforms that they are signing up to. Because from a tech perspective, we always have the choice. Software is software. But how we implement that software when the platform fosters community how we cultivate the engagement that will transpire as people use that software. From a tech perspective, we always have the choice. Do we want to either go the route that will foster respect, integrity, and kindness, and unity, even when we defer, and there might be emotions, allow for that space to happen and not take that and sensationalize it. And I always will choose that. What kind of support have you cultivated or met or brought on board to build this enterprise? Because you're very resourceful <laughs> and you're great at identifying talent that's complementary to your own. How did you do that? I truly believe that we cannot lose the self in the name of whatever we choose to do in this life. Being that I was the girl that everyone said, you're not that smart, you're not talented enough, you don't stand a chance here, you didn't go to Columbia University, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. I've never won an award. Um, you know, I can talk about failing forward. And if that is a reminder of anything is not just to look at the work. So when I scout talent, I'm not just looking at the work. What else do you look for? Authenticity for me is key. Being grounded and kind. If I sense any ego, I don't have time for that. You're not honest with yourself. It's going to be hard for you to be honest with other people. Also, I think anybody can learn technique given the proper environment, but hiring the person is a totally different ball of wax because you could hire somebody or work with somebody who's excellent, skillful, deliver something that's so buttoned up and shiny, but then as a shit person, clearly that's an easy choice to make. Yeah, I call it like parts of a whole. In everything that we do, we should at least try to do our best in the most honest way possible. That means that you are going to be vulnerable and you are going to be scared and you are going to tune into what makes us human in that sense, you know? But we are vulnerable anyway. That's what I mean. And so if you can own that and not be afraid to share that, you know, I remember at Harper's Bazaar, my boss who ended up hiring me asked me 
two questions she said who's your inspiration at the time you know and tell me one thing about you <laughs> and she had like two minutes I told her who my inspiration was at the time which was Richard Avedon and then I said about me listen I don't know anything <laughs> about the magazine world the editorial world I don't know anything about fashion I was wearing overalls you know hadn't brushed my hair in 10 days you know nada but I'm a hard worker and I'm not gonna give up and no and I think I also said I was gonna do my best not to hold her back she gave me the job right there and I remember when I thought like this is my truth I just gotta go say it I remember having that thought there's no way she's gonna hire me but it was my truth and I think I'm lucky like I've always been the girl that falls over and you know <laughs> at the Washington Post I was going to give a talk and the director of photography Marianne Golden had set up <laughs> the TV and everything and I just walked in and she said okay just cross the desk and as soon as I crossed it all I took all the cable work the whole thing just fell and that was my introduction. You got it out of the way, dude. Well, but that's like the story of my life that I've never been that girl that like just comes in and can just smooth her way into anything. You know you what know? I think about that? Yeah. You're not a performer. No, no. You just show up. The gift behind that to all the people out there that can relate <laughs> is exactly what you just said. You get it out of the way from the beginning. Yes, I'm insecure. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I'm very vulnerable. You know, I don't wear makeup because I barely have time to get dressed. You know, I don't have the best answers. It's really hard for me to make decisions you know, on a human level. And so I'm not trying to figure out the entire world. I'm just building one little thing at a time and hope that somewhere along the way I can do something good with it. And in a way, the Internet protects me because I don't show up at events or at galas or, you know, I'm not this social butterfly in that sense. And so the internet is like what my hair used to be for me. You know, my hair was always something that I used to like protect myself from my vulnerabilities and my insecurities. And, and the internet gave me a little bit of distance so that I could produce and go through this entire journey and be super authentic. But then at the same time, I also recognize that it's not perfect because I'm still hiding behind the internet on a human level. There are always layers, though, to uncover. It never ends. You never arrive. And you never fully arrive. That at the end, like, there's no perfect answer and there's no perfect anything. I mean, at the end, there's always a contradiction and there's always something that you could have done or you didn't do. Or ultimately, at the end, what I've learned is that it's okay. Just breathe and, and start <laughs> again. I love that so much. I think that's right. Being at peace that there is no perfect answer to anything, really. Well, maybe love is something that I keep going back to as an answer. When in doubt, lead with a heart. Be kind. And that might open the door to see the thing that's challenging through. That's as close to an answer as I've ever gotten to. That's cool. When I'm in doubt, first I shower, which is very practical. And I walk. I walk a lot. But on, a, on an existential level, when I'm in doubt, I surrender to my doubt. Because, you know, when I think about love, I used to think that I knew what it was and how to define it or describe it or what it felt. And 
And now I feel like when it comes to love, I think love is living. Everything that happens in between, I try to surrender to it and accept it. And the reason is because I've been blessed with so much support from an emotional perspective with my family, who today is like incredibly supportive. And, you know, with Graham, who has never left my side. And then Gabriel, our son, you know. So I acknowledge that and I am so grateful to it. You know, and I'm so grateful to the Visura community that has always been so kind to me, you know. They've been kind to us. We're a startup. We have made mistakes. We're trying to figure it out. And the fact that thousands of people understand that and are willing to walk the path with us because we all are interconnected in understanding that there's some real challenges and we're just, we're all just trying to figure this out. I mean, that's amazing. I'm also very aware that that's not the reality that a lot of people live, right? My way of maintaining the equilibrium, my feet grounded, my way of understanding that whatever resources that I have been given in this life, whatever access, it's not just something that I'm grateful for. It's something that also I am accountable for. Not only because... I would have never survived this journey without that support. But also because from that foundation is how I can then build also on an ethos perspective, expand that energy as much as I possibly can, you know, without judgment, without hierarchies, without entitlement or righteousness or all that. Because ultimately we're all one. I think we're all one too. And it's hard to remember all the time. Yeah, we're just like parts of a whole, you know? And in this universe with this galaxy, we're just stars. And Isn't there... So, I find so much freedom in that. We're tiny. Nobody really knows anything. We don't know why we're here. We're just spinning in space at God knows what speed. Who is there to tell you how to live your life and build it and all of that? It's a complicated question. I mean, I think structure is important parameters are important at the same time i disagree with hierarchy and i disagree with punishment and i believe in accountability when it comes to society but again it's so complicated you know it is and i grew up under a dictatorship i grew up in a family of dissidents all my grandparents have been under house arrest or in jail i mean i remember growing up you know, with my grandfather, he was under house arrest. I was followed to school. So I fully get that not everybody has the freedom to choose. And I'm privileged. I'm a upper middle class Caucasian woman, right? Mm -hmm. Yet I have a window into those kinds of challenges, minuscule to what other people have to endure. So I get it. My point is more like on a philosophical level, there is freedom. Like man's search for meaning. Yeah, is realizing that we are one. Nobody really truly knows the better. Yes. And one thing that's really beautiful about what you're saying is, I mean, I think about the word surrendering, right? There is freedom in surrendering because you're surrendering to the word. You know, you're surrendering to language. You're surrendering to all that can be objectified. Emotions, I mean, the essence of Taoism stems from if you can name it it is no longer eternal 
that was the first page of the Tao Te Ching, which is a book that changed my life and when I was younger. I was supposed to read the whole book. I can't get past language. Mm. I read that in high school and it changed me forever. That and Be Here Now, Baba Ram Das. A lot of what the daring is in spirit is coming out of those roots of equanimity and really thinking outside yourself and trying to do good things. Well, Visura, if you look at the V, I asked Graham, who designed the logo, to take the tip of the V and cut it almost as if it's like leaving or is it coming in? And it stems from the idea of being a part of a whole, which is the essence of Taoism. I so believe that each and every one of us can contribute to the universe and that we do. If we understand that, maybe we can create awareness as to how we can build upon that. There was a turning point in my life. I was living from a place of me, my, I call it me, myself, and Irene, where I was always the center of the universe. And so the question was always, why did this happen to me? And then one day somebody asked me, do you want to build a hundred holes one time or do you want to be the kind of person that builds one hole and digs it a hundred times? And I said, that's what I want to do. The person said, well, then focus on that. What that has allowed me, obviously, is to peel an onion in a very superficial way, right? Because I started a company and through that company, for years, I've been trying to solve this challenge different ways, right? That experience has led me to understand that, you know, you enter one room, you identify a problem, you attempt to solve that problem, and then you might stay in that room forever, but, you know, let's say you get lucky and you solve that problem, you walk out of that room and you enter another room, and it's the same repeat within that space. When you start seeing that pattern on a very real, tangible way, you start realizing that it's not you. It's not about you. And then I came to terms with the fact that because it wasn't about me, it was all about my attitude towards life and how I decided to walk into any street or any home or any, anything or walk out. That's when I learned there's no excuse. If you want to foster empathy, kindness, love, unity, respect, integrity, you can. You were shown that through that experience. That's when I learned that. So there's some sort of self-awareness process that took place. Because you know what you made me think of? The friction is that even though the world is not about us, our actions, however small they seem, impact the world around us and reverberate yeah, absolutely. through every person that we touch and they touch, etc. So... Yeah, like you're meaningful, right? Your actions and what you say has impact and weight and meaning. It's not that we don't feel anger. It's not that we don't, we're not cynical, but choose silence <laughs> before putting out there. Look, I'm not saying don't get angry. I mean, I'm angry. I'm tired. You know, of course, be you, right? I'm talking about professionally. Mm -hmm. You know, when you are in a working environment, be respectful and be kind, <laughs> aspire for that, have that self-awareness and don't give up on yourself when it comes to that, right? We can always be better. You can. That said, if you're angry, figure out a way to channel it that can be constructive. 
I go biking and I go up a mountain. And in that process, no one wants to hear what I say when I go up that mountain. I send it to the wind. I identify things where I can channel my anger. I can channel my frustration. I can channel my pain without hurting people out there or the earth or, you know. You know what I tell my kids? Feel your feelings. Feel them full force. And if you need to throw things around and punch things, I understand. Your room is a safe place. Throw anything you need to Go throw. Yes, yes. Yeah, I love that. It's about creating that safe space, right, to express and manifest. Because if we don't get it out, then it's, you know, cancerous. You go biking, my kids throw pillows. It's all good. Yeah, and then that allows you, it empowers you in a really great way. Because then when you go to work, now people do yoga and there's all these different resources that organizations are building and offering their employees so that they can manage their time and their stress and their emotions, right? Public health and mental health is a big thing. When I think about Visura and I think about us growing, it is like a home. When people go to work, I want them to feel empowered. I want them to know that they have the resources and the tools and access to what they need so that they can, as individuals, manage their time and their life in a way where it's okay. That is literally what we put out to the world. And I'm thinking more from an organizational perspective and the fact as a founder, right, of a company, everything that we do, that's what goes out to the world. What I give as a human being engaging with the world is very little compared to what Visura is doing, you know, and the impact that that has. So from my perspective, it's like I need to make sure that I'm okay so that when I go to work and I produce whatever it is, I'm producing from a place of love, of kindness. And even when I'm angry, I'm expressing anger, utilizing the resources I have, you know, so that anger doesn't escalate into something that could create pain. I hope that as Visura grows, that is an ethos that we can maintain operationally, right? For all of the employees, because it's not just... Right, right. Does that make sense? It totally does. So where my mind is going now is how do we do that working within an industry like the internet, which moves so fast? How do we carve out an organization that can slow down, that allows room for failure because failure is inevitable. It's part of learning. How do we cultivate that tolerance and that quiet and that self-awareness within the culture. It's when all of us that have companies and build the infrastructure that makes up the internet, rather than looking for viewers and engagement to happen 24-7, because that's how they monetize, instead think about effectivity and think about that what is best for the world is for us to build from the ethos that viewers and readers and buyers should spend the least amount of time and money possible engaging in the internet so that they can be out there being with their friends, being with family, producing work and doing whatever it is that they were meant to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not about keeping them online. It's about giving them the information and the community they need in the most efficient way possible so that they can go out and live life tangibly, like a human. Like a human being. Anyone that has a role in the internet from a supply side, right? 
could shift from what I could gain from this to what is the best way to contribute to society. And in doing that, take into account education and health and public health, you know, mental health, the environment, new platforms would flourish and there would be a shift in the ethos of the internet today. That's what we work for every day. And we're not the only ones. Which is great. Yeah, at this point, the predominant organizations that serve in the internet and reach masses of people, for the most part, their ethos stems from wanting people to stay online for as much as possible and monetize from that perspective. You know, my hope is that in the new generation of kids that are so much more aware and so much more vocal and active, that they can see through the branding and the marketing strategies to keep you online and start actually looking for alternatives that are mindful and respectful of their time especially the impact that being online all the time has on your mental health as well as on the environment. So my hope is in the future. You're an optimist. I am. I believe in love above all. I just don't like to talk about it. <laughs> is there anything else we haven't touched that you want to talk about? I will say one thing. Tell me. For all the women out there, who have an idea that could potentially solve a challenge in this world. You're not alone. If you experience any sense of exclusion, unfairness, while you're figuring out how to build a sustain, you know, a business model around this, know that it is not you that is holding the company back or the idea back. 4% of women receive support when they're trying to build a company, whether a for-profit or NGO, it is not you. It might not be the idea either. You might have an amazing idea and you might be an extraordinary leader. You know, when it comes to the entrepreneurial world, that realm is really behind when it comes to inclusivity, diversity, and supporting equal and merit-based opportunities. Therefore, I don't know about tomorrow, all I can say to you now is you're not alone. It is not you. And for as long as you can, keep moving forward. Even if it's baby steps. Even if it's baby steps. Yeah, because you can. And we always think about change from a, it has to have such a big impact. That's not really the case. Change can just be one day at a time, one step at a time, one breath at a time, one act of kindness at a time. Thank you for coming on. This was lovely. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for listening to Blissfully Aware. Look out for future episodes where we'll continue to share inspiring talks with creative people who are forced for good. Subscribe to Blissfully Aware through your favorite podcast app and check out thedaring.co for in-depth articles. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman. Our theme music is by Ben Tyree. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at info at Until next time.